electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right. Thank you very much, Carl. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the great debate about stocks. Tom Lee says buy. Mike Wilson says sell. So our investment committee settles it right here, right now. Joining me for the hour today. Stephanie Link, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, Bill Baruch, everybody's in the house. Let's check the markets, go to the wall, show you what we're doing. Just past 12 noon in the east, we're at the lows of the session. Dow's down some 400 points. S&P's down about 1.5%. That's a loss of 60. NASDAQ, 1.5 to the downside, 173 decline. 357 is where we are in the 10-year. Uh, services, ISM beat, factory orders beat. Market may not like that because obviously uh, the implications that that has for the Fed. But Steph, let's let's just go this uh, bull bear route. Tom Lee, okay, he still sees a rally into year end towards forty four to forty five hundred. Mike Wilson says it's time to fade it. Time to fade it. Take profits. What side are you on? I'm kind of right down the middle. No, that doesn't work. <laughs> I am. Doesn't well, work. Uh, all right. I'm right down the middle, medium term. I think we're going to be in a trading range for a while because we just have so many unknowns. And we get these weeks where we get good economic data, like like today we got a great yeah, services number and factory orders. Last week was horrible data, right? So we are in this push-pull in the economy right now. We do not know what the Fed is really going to do, but they are restrictive. We know that. We don't know what the implications are because we've talked about the lag impact. That being said, I have said since the summer, I think you could have a rally into the end of the year, a relief rally. Do you still believe that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, do. I do, because seasonally, but also positioning. Everybody is negative. Everybody is defensive. And so I'm taking uh, opportunities where I can in terms of buying on weakness, um, selling where I have less conviction names. We'll talk about some of those in a little bit. But I do think we can rally here um, into the end of the year. Again, medium term, though, I worry because we just have so many unknowns. Now, all that being said, we've been talking in the last couple of weeks. Actually, I'm starting to feel a little bit better about earnings because the dollar is weak. The dollar has pulled back. And that, that hurt earnings for multinationals 5 to 8% last quarter alone. So the dollar weakness is, is a good thing, I think. You right? know, it, it Input is. Do- dollar are, index lowest level, I think, since June. Right. Input costs are coming down. Supply chains are actually freeing up a little bit. So, yeah, demand is going to be the question mark. But maybe companies can offset the weak demand with a little bit other help, a little more, a few more tailwinds that we uh-huh. haven't had in a very long time. Now, I could easily go to Jim Labenthal here, <laughs> who would suggest that he thinks that we could have a year-end rally, too. However, I'm going to go to Joe first. I want to nice know. Nice tease. Nice tease. I wanna, well, because I think I know what side of the boat you're on, and I'm not exactly sure today what side Joe's on. Um, 4,400 would be a 9% upside from here. 45 is 11 and a half. That's Tom Lee, okay? Is it time to buy into the rally? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you want to even call it a rally at this point, or fade it. Simple question. Two different strategies. Okay, last week, I expected us to get a Federal Reserve-driven rally into the end of the week. We got that. 
Now can the market go another 10% through the remainder of the year to its 44, 4,500? Let's say it can. I still don't want to take that trade. And I'll Do you think you it can or not? Over the, the next, bottom line is like if you all right, everybody on, wants to answer to the same question. Everybody wants to answer the same question. Joe, are, do you think we're going to have a rally into the end of the year, or are those hopes dashed? December 13th, 8.30 in the morning. Mm. That, that's, it's all dependent upon December 13th. CPI. At 8.30 in the morning, what is CPI? Last time CPI came out in November, what did the market rally? 7% off of that? Mm. Okay, so the market on a benign number could easily read. But I want to finish my thought for a second. Please. What happens after 44? Four, let's say on December 31st, we're at 4,500. What happens thereafter? You have to ask yourself that question. Is the overwhelming amount of challenging headwinds that have hamstrung the market for the entirety of 2022 on December 31st, do you have clarity result? Uh, no, you don't. So I, I think that you have to be cautious. I think you, to Steph's point, you have to maintain. Well, Steph says their earnings may be better than people think. They could to be. your I, point of what happens after. But I hmm. want, to, I still want defensive positioning, and I'll tell you one other thing, from an asset allocation perspective, and I'm hearing this in a lot of conversations that I'm having. On January 1st, when you measure equities relative to fixed income, and now the emerging markets with China reopening, there's a lot of renewed interest in fixed income in a rebalancing opportunity and the emerging market. So if you look at the data that Steph points to today, um, obviously it's not pointing to a recession, okay? The jobs data is not pointing to a recession either. Wages are up. The journal today puts out the idea that the Fed is penciling in, in their words, higher rates for next year because in part of wage growth. Um, and maybe that's in part what the market doesn't like today is more economic data that's strong means that they need to stay more engaged. That in and of itself puts a cap on the, on the, the, the market depending, and the economy, for, that's, for, that, for that matter. Uh, depending, Scott, on what actually happens with inflation. I'm looking at my screen right now. I'm looking at uh, gasoline futures. They're $2.24 a gallon, which is below the level on December 31st of last year. So all of Ukraine, all of that impact on fuel, take it out. No, the Fed doesn't care about that, though. But absolutely. No, the, no, the, no, not Ab- as much. They okay. care more about wages, mm-hmm. right? You know that. What they care about, we've had this argument you, before, sorry. is CPI. CPI. We're going to agree on that. They care on CPI. What goes into CPI includes wages. It also includes rents. It also includes goods prices. It also includes fuel prices. So what I'm saying is relevant. What you're saying is relevant, too. What I'm trying to dictate here, what I'm trying to put forth is the idea of a soft landing, the, the odds of that are increasing. But that means that it, I, I believe so, because what is a soft landing? It's full employment, which we've clearly got. It's a strong economy, which we've clearly got. And it's decreasing inflation. Now, this is a hypothesis that is partially proven out by the October inflation number. But Joe makes a good point. You have to see November's inflation number. We have PPI this Friday. You have to get those inflation numbers to determine, was October a blip? Or was it the start of a real trend of inflation coming down more rapidly than the market or even the Fed thinks? I went to the fuel, and I'm not disagreeing well, with what the you're saying about headline right they don't you know it matters 
it matters to my Obviously, call. It, it matters. matters to my call that inflation is coming down but more Jim, rapidly more than PCE expected. PCE is what the Fed really looks so at. So let's look at rents. Let's look at 5% year over year growth, and they want it to be 2%. It's nowhere near Heading where in the right direction. Heading, it doesn't matter. Near. It's not going to be. There's no way that the November core CPI is going to be anywhere near 2%. I don't think that's really what you're saying. I think both of us that. will agree that, that what, you wanna see, what you want to see is inflation. what expectations are going in, okay? And I, I believe it's 6.2% for core CPI. Don't quote me, but I believe Headline it's... Headline at 73 Yeah. If you get numbers that are better than those, Steph, I think you'll agree with me the market's going to rally. I, and that's the call that's the call I'm making. I'm just saying on inflation, you've got to be careful, though, because they do look at a lot of various different metrics. And core PCE is one that he even talked about, Powell did, last Wednesday. That's what he's looking at because of the wage importance within core PCE. They, they, they all matter. They all matter. He has, by the way, I mean, core PC is traditionally what the Fed's looked at. This year he has shifted to CPI. But nonetheless, the point is this. What is the trend? Are the numbers coming in better than expected? That's why, to Joe's point, the CPI, and I'll tell you, the PPI this Friday also matters. Mr. Brew, go ahead. Weigh in. I agree that CPI, PPI, they're front and center here, Friday and then Tuesday. But where are the risks skewed? I mean, right now we're 4,100, big trend line from the record highs. Risk are to the downside. And if this number is in line, we're not going to rally. Like if the market was at 3,700, CPI is in line, we could rally from that. The risks right now are to the downside. So am I cautious here? Yes. Is 4,400 doable? Yes. But I, I think we need to consolidate, digest what we've seen here in the last couple of weeks and settle in and, and bring this market down to a level where it can rally after the Fed you know, takes forth from the CPI number. So, Stephanie Link, um, you made a move in the market that doesn't scream of somebody who's that cautious. Okay? You bought Cleveland I'm not Cliffs. Not cautious, especially into the end of the year. I just said I think that there's Well, I mean, you rally. bought this for the 3 weeks? I bought well, the, the way this thing trades, it, it certainly could be a doubtful because I am a long-term investor. Maybe I'll take some off if it rallies. We'll see, but I, I like the I like the story. The stock is down 25% year to date. It trades at five times earnings, three times EBITDA. And I like what they're doing in terms of their balance sheet. I think the demand equation gets improved because of the infrastructure bill. Auto also is recovering nicely. And so I just think the risk reward is really pretty good here. But this is a soft landing purchase. Yeah, could be. I'm not saying. I'm you don't buy Cleveland Cliffs if you think we're going into a recession. I'm not saying we're going into a recession. I'm saying, like, we just don't know. And we know we're going to slow down. But look, I mean, we just got a much better GDP number for 3Q. Atlanta GDP, the Atlanta Fed uh, GDP now is looking for 3% growth, even if we go to 2% or 1.5%. This stock is so cheap at this point, and I like, the, I like what they're doing internally, and especially because I think they have pricing power. Unless it's cheap for a reason. I mean, I just go back to the fact of it's hard to buy cyclical stocks like this exposed to the global economy if you... Right. And you also push back when I bought Caterpillar. And Caterpillar's higher from when I bought it, too. So I do lean more cyclical. I have been overweight energy. I have been overweight industrials, uh-huh. materials all year long, financials as well. And that's been quite frustrating as of late. But I, I am I'm, I'm trying to be balanced in what I see in the economy. I think it's going to slow. But I also see that these sectors that I'm overweight in are under-owned, under-appreciated, quite cheap, generating huge free cash flow. So... Now, again, I could easily go to Jim for the Cleveland Cliffs thing, but I'll go to Joe first. I appreciate that. Go ahead. The trigger for your trade to work is the dollar. It's not so much that you need to see the economy make this dramatic battleship turn. 
it's you just need some relief for the U.S. dollar. And I think a lot of the material story, whether it's Freeport McMoran, Cortiva, where I know you are, uh, Nucor, Albemarle, FMC, a lot of that material story is going to begin to work. And you're getting the glimpse that maybe the peak dollar story is in play. Well, what if China comes back as well? Well, Add China that, is. I, right? I think that's being priced into the market right now. I think we understand that China Slowly. is moving towards a full reopening. Yeah, I, gonna, I would agree, but that's only, that's only going to be more tailwinds for these kinds of stocks. We'll, we'll get to the China story, which is uh, obviously significant and good, good points that you make. Um, Cleveland Cliffs. Jim owns it, obviously. I know he's a huge supporter of it, so I know what he's going to say. What about you? How We've do you grade it? it? How would you grade that? I, I like the stock. I like, I like the dollar, the fact that it's down. Uh, I'm a little worried now that the dollar is at support. So in the intermediate term, that could be a little bit of a headwind. But you pointed out, Atlanta Fed GDP, 4.3% right now for quarter four. I, don't, I see a soft landing. I, I don't see people are talking about consumer credit. You see a soft landing, too? Yeah, I, I see a soft landing. I, I don't think this thing is going to roll over. I don't think the, the economy is going to roll over. I think we're going to kind of smooth through the first quarter and second quarter of next year. I, I like Cleveland Cliffs. I don't own it right now. I just can't get past the fact that how can we make calls like that when th- that if you make a call like that, then you have to assume that the Fed is not going to get tighter than people think. Exactly. You have to assume that the Fed's not going to get over 5% on the terminal rate. You have to assume that the lag effects that are undoubtedly going to occur are not going to be as dramatic as history or conventional wisdom uh, would would suggest. Yeah, you're right. But right now, so they're pricing at 50 basis points in, in December. I do. I am concerned right now that we see the 25 basis points in February that's priced in becomes 50. So that's where I'm cautious. But you look at the dollar, the dollar yuan is now back below seven. So that's a tailwind. Uh, the Chinese against the Chinese yuan. I, I do think if the dollar can stay contained here, the then we could see a better story around the world coming from the U.S. as well. And then the other, the other part of it is the 10-year. Is that 3.5? There's a lot of support at 3.5%. If the 10-year starts to move up, it's going to tighten conditions again. So you've got to watch the 10-year. And if we get back to 4, then the story can change a little bit and evolve to slowing things down. But I still see a soft landing. But energy outperformed, actually, when interest rates got above 4. Yes. So it's entirely possible, right? I mean, that commodities can work with oh, yeah. a dollar where it is, or maybe even if it firms up a little bit. Yeah, but those are... I think Okay. Commodities can perform in in that environment. Commodities can perform in a slowing economy. It's been proven before, and that's the supply-demand dynamic. The dollar, which has been brought up a lot here, is primarily based on differences in interest rates and projections thereof. Your comment, Scott, which is dead on, and you heard me say exactly, that I think the the Fed funds rate, the peak Fed funds rate, is going to be below that 5% that Powell is talking about and that the market believes. That's, I believe, why the dollar has rallied, at least in strong part. Well, the, the, here, the, the interesting part about that conversation is the market for right now believes it, not necessarily because inflation is coming down so fast. It's that the economy may be weakening below the surface enough that the Fed's not going to be able to go above 5%. It could be, Scott. What you're saying could be the case. You and I, I think, will agree that, you know, they don't say in the headlines of the Wall Street Journal why the dollar is down. But I think there is a convincing argument that can be made, and I'm trying to make it, that part of the reason the dollar is down on the perception that the Fed won't have to raise as much because of what inflation is doing. And I already went through gasoline futures. There's other commodity futures, freight costs, et cetera. Yeah, you know, wage prices are high, Scott, but I got to tell you, I'm going to go back to last week. Your interview with Jeremy Siegel on Friday afternoon, I hope everybody saw it. It's hard at Friday at 4 p.m. A lot of people have checked out, but he Why said is that something. Hard? Huh? Why is that hard? Well, I know you were there. But look, what he said 
he said a couple of things. Wage inflation is below the overall headline inflation rate, so how can we blame the workers? And then also he made that good social commentary of, okay, we're going to hit workers with inflation and then take their jobs away. That doesn't strike me as correct. There's distortion still there. The wage, so wages, 2.5% of their wage move month over month came from transportation and warehouse. And the, and the, the number of empl- um, employed dropped. They lost jobs in that sector. So there's still these distortions that are taking place right now. The, the other uh, move that you made, Steph, you sold Target. And that was to fund the Dollar General buy that you recently did. Yeah, I still like Target a lot. I still think they're, they're taking market share. They're a leader. It's an interesting um, one to sell. Um, and it's down a lot, so it was painful. But when Dollar General was down 8% after delivering almost a 7% comp and 11% year-over-year revenue growth and 35% uh, growth in revenues from 2019, and I like their consumable mix, and I, and I like what the management is doing, I, to me, I just had to, t- I had to make a choice, and it was a painful one to sell Target. It's not to say I wouldn't buy it back at some point, but I really had so much more conviction in Dollar General and less conviction in Target in terms of the timing of when they're going to see better inventories, better margins. It's, there's no doubt in my mind it's coming in 2023. I just think I have a lot more time on my hands with that one versus Dollar General, which I just thought was an absolute overreaction. The, the move uh, today in oil is, is interesting, uh, Joe, considering I bring it up because it plays into a move that you made. Uh, was up, now it's down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was above 80, now it's below 80. Uh, for you know a number of reasons, there's some OPEC news today, there's some China reopening expectations. You sold EQT. By the way, Nat Gas today is down 20% since Thanksgiving. Yes. Since Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does yeah, that so play e- into this well, sell we, of we, EQT? We, we, we spoke about a week and a half ago with Stephen Weiss about his sale in EQT, and I mentioned that if it broke the 200-day moving average, I would do the same, and I would move to the sidelines. Towards the end of last week, that's exactly, unfortunately, what happened in EQT, and I moved towards the sidelines. I'm happy that I actually did today. I will admit I have not traded EQT uh, very well over the last year and a half or so. Uh, I've mentioned it a few times on air, and that trade just ultimately has not worked. But be very careful, just if I could, on oil. There's a lot of complexity on what's going on right now. There's a lot of ships out at sea containing Russian oil. I think the Russians got ahead of the announcements today and really flooded the market. So you've got a lot of cargoes out there. That could resolve itself, but it's going to resolve itself really over the next uh, six to eight weeks. So I don't know where we're going to land here with energy, probably for a good month to a month and a half. And that's why I'm going to maintain my exposure at overweight towards energy. Mm. Okay. Uh Mr. Baruch, we haven't seen you in a while, so you got a few moves that I wanted to get to. Uh, SoFi, you sold it. Yes. Warner Brothers Discovery, you sold it. And then Shopify, you sold as well, which I'm going to get into in, in a moment. And Netflix, you sold. Yes. Why did you sell that? Let's well, start there. Why that? I mean, to be honest, I'm looking at this big gap from August. It's uh, three, I think it's August, 3.30. And that's just a tremendous amount of technical resistance where... I'm a little cautious of the market right now, so I'm trying to find out where can I raise some cash. We had some, you know, we got we added to Netflix at a really good level, so I'm kind of rotating a bit. May look to Disney if the market comes in a little bit, kind of move that cash there. But as for Shopify and SoFi and Warner Brothers, they were trades. I was looking for high beta names when the market was at a very low level that are going to react the most. And, and we caught about 40% moving Shopify. It's interesting with Shopify because we have a new segment that we, we wanted to mention today. It's called Grade My Trade, where you can actually reach out to us and the investment committee is going to go over a trade that you made. You're going to let us know what it was, and they're going to tell you what they think. And Shopify was one that we got from a viewer named JR. Uh, now, 
this is not your typical trade, and he's looking for an incredible amount of upside. So what's your opinion? Bought calls on Shopify out to January 24th. What's your opinion of the trade? 3,000 calls on the January 24th, 250 strike, and 30 calls out to January 24th on the 100 strike. So to say that's looking for some significant upside is a dramatic understatement. Yeah, that's a bit of a YOLO trade. Um, Here's the thing. When you're trading options, your timing has to be right, too. And right now we're running into some big resistance at 45. There's even bigger resistance at 50. So if Shopify can get above 50, consolidate at that point, there's going to be some more upside. But... You know, I, I think right now, I mean, it's, it's really a tough, tough spot here. Um, a lot of resistance overhead. And the timing, you know, you may want to wait for a little pullback in order to take some you know, upside on that. Okay. Um, I appreciate that. I appreciate the, the viewer uh, writing into us, too. Keep doing that. Keep coming uh, with those, and uh, we'll have the in- investment committee grade the trade. Speaking of resistance, uh, and it goes back to the beginning of the conversation from the top of the show, is whether we think we're going to have a rally or not between now and the end of the year. Plays right into Tom Lee or Mike Wilson, if you don't think so. Resistance, Apple. Apple may play a role in that conversation of whether we have a rally or not. I'm looking at Apple right now. It was in the 130s. Now it's in the high 140s. What do we think about Apple here? Is it getting up against some resistance? Or do you think that that has uh, you know, bottomed out for the near term? I think it's hard right now, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it give back. I mean, even if production of the iPhone gets back up and running, you're talking about end of December into January. So this quarter already is going to be pretty poor in terms of uh, the units of iPhone. It was up today, by the way. Now it's turned negative, as you see. I wanted to bring it up because it was up in a down tape. Right. Last week, people thought it would be a six million unit shortfall. Today, I'm hearing one to two million. I don't know what it is. My point of not owning a big chunk of this is because this was a stay-at-home beneficiary, right, from Macs and iPads and all that, right? And also, by the way, apps. Apps have really uh, declined pretty dramatically in the last couple of quarters. And so for me... At 23 times forward, it's just it's not that compelling, Scott. I think, you know, I have been in Meta. You know, of all the fangs, it's the only one I own. It's been painful. But that one, at least I can get around the valuation. And I don't think much has to go right for that stock to recover pretty substantially in 2020. How much has to go right, though, with Apple for the market to have the Tom Lee rally? It's a good question. It's one we've been kicking around, right? And I'm, I was thinking about this today because the producers asked me what my thoughts are on Apple. And a- as I said at the time, like, I don't care. And think about this. I know I'm only one person, and I'm not trying to be provocative, um, but I sold half of my position two months ago. So I'm, I'm below the market weight by more than 50%. It's below an average position size for me. I've got it because, Steph, I think you'll agree. It'll, it'll be fine. Nobody's going to say it's a terrible stock. But is this where the leadership's coming from? No. Now, Scott, to your question, I know I'm only one person, but I'm telling you, I don't care about Apple. I wake up oh. in the morning. I care about Boeing. I care about General Motors. I care about Wind Resorts. I, I heard. I heard Joe Grunt. So I'll just. I'll let you give it to him. But I don't care. You know what? You know me? what? You know what? I don't think a lot of people care about. He means give you the ball, not give you the business. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, I mean, ball. and that's like, that's like saying the Kansas City Chiefs could win oh. the Super Bowl if Pat. Mahomes isn't the It's not like saying that at all. Yes, it is. It's a stock. <laughs> it's a stock with four letters in its symbol. It's what, a stock. Forget it. It's how not much, the market. How, what's, what percentage of weighting in the S&P is it? Six, six and a half percent. What's okay. the rest, what's the rest His, of the weighting, Joe? Quick math. Historically. 90, historically. 93 and a half. Okay, whatever. Go ahead. So his, historically, this, the Apple to have a six and a half weighting in the S&P, what other stock can we fall back on in the history of time and see that significant of a weighting in addition beyond that? If you tell me, and by the way, my opinion of, of Apple is that I think Apple is an example of a stock that made its low 
in the second quarter in June, retested the low in October, held above that low and should be fine from here. It's also towards the end of the year. So you're probably engaging a little bit of a buyback right now with Apple as well. I wouldn't be surprised to know that as well. But if you tell me that Apple's going to fall back to the June lows, the, the market's not rallying. And if you tell me that Apple's just going to sit between 140 and 145, the market's not going to 4,400 or 4,500 or whatever number you want to pick. 93.5% of the S&P 500 is not Apple. So mathematically, it, the rest of the market can rally. By the way, I mean, let's just go to what's been happening the last few weeks. Dow Jones has been rallying. It's not because of Apple. Dow Jones has been kicking the snot out of the S&P 500 because the rest of the market, which was left behind in the last decade, is performing. Now, maybe it's a dollar, Joe, and I, uh, you make a convincing case on that. But my case is still, I got you at 6.5%. Okay. Go back, hang on, go Real back quick. 20 years ago. Go back go. 20 years ago. The market leaders there were the tech stocks coming out of the 1990s. They did not do well in the aughts, right? Microsoft did not do well in the aughts. Amazon didn't do well. All right, go ahead. Thank you. Straight ahead, a changing (laughs) tune on China. Appreciate that very much. Uh, Those stocks are coming off their best week since the spring. Wall Street turning more bullish on a potential reopening from Beijing. The uh, desk is going to debate the China trade coming up next. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. Let's go down to D.C. now. Elon Moy has a news alert for us. Elon? Scott, a new survey by the Business Roundtable shows sentiment among CEOs is getting gloomier. Overall, the index fell 11 points for the fourth quarter. Specifically, plans for hiring plunged 17 points. The outlook for capital investment decreased 7 points, and expectations for sales dropped 8 points. The BRT said the results reflect the impact of high inflation, Fed rate hikes, and domestic and global headwinds. In a statement, BRT Chair and GM CEO Mary Barra said, with continued supply chain challenges and inflation uncertainty, many CEOs remain cautious about domestic plans and expectations 
for the next six months. Now, the BRT also called on Congress to pass key corporate tax rates by the end of the year, including restoring that full deduction for R&D as well as permitting reform. They also pressed Congress to address the debt ceiling as soon as possible. Scott. Okay. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy, Washington, D.C. Latest headlines there from the Business Roundtable. China stocks, take a look at them. They're rallying again today. Signals of COVID reopening. Morgan Stanley turns bullish on the space. We find out global funds are buying uh, on those signals. Are you buying any of these stocks? And I don't want to know about U.S. stocks that have exposure to China. I want to know about the Alibabas of the world, the Baidus, the JDs, and if not, why? I don't trust it. Still? I, nope, I do not trust it. Um, I don't trust the policy. I think there's an effect that you could invest around. I think it certainly benefits the emerging markets. It lifts a little bit of a weight from that asset class, um, whether it's Brazil, Mexico, India, Indonesia, Malaysia. These are areas that can source their own commodities. The Chinese can't source their own commodities. They're reliant on importing them. Uh, from an accounting standpoint, I don't trust them as well. I mentioned with you on overtime last week, if you want to have exposure, you would buy the China ETF. That's the one way you'd get the exposure. But individually, I don't want to own these names. But you feel comfortable buying the ETF? I would buy the ETF. I wouldn't even buy I'm not comfortable buying it here, no. Oh, you're not? Okay. Steph? No. Yeah, definitely. I'm with Joe. Uh, transparency. There's no transparency from China pure play companies. You can do all the fundamental analysis that you want, and you wake up one day and all of a sudden you have a Jack Ma situation on your hands, right? So to me, I, I do play China, and I have a lot of actually exposure to China through U.S. multinational companies, right? I mean, Broadcom has 30% exposure. Cat. Right? Cat has only about 9% exposure, but it certainly has a personality Starbucks. in China. Estee Lauder has 34% of their exposure in, in China. Starbucks for sure. Nike Yeah, but sure. see, the, the, the difference here is the exposure that those companies have are to the Chinese economy. The reasons that Joe suggests he's uncomfortable are because of the Chinese regulations, the regulators. It's kind of You can't trust one. I mean, you can say what you want about the economy, but you get my point. No, I do. Two different fundamental reasons. Lack of transparency, right? The companies aren't transparent, and they don't have a control. I mean, the government comes in and takes over a CEO overnight. How do you how do you value something like that, right? Even if it's at a really big discount. That's why I get much more information from the companies I just mentioned. I get exposure, and I do think these stocks, the ones I own in any way, are down so much on China. And that if you do get this reopened, they will certainly benefit. And I can sleep at night a little bit better owning the ones that I own. Would you buy any of these things for, for you know, a I'm tactical maneuver in the saying. market? Don't trust it. Don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't trust the politics there. Um, K-Web's 100% off the lows. Can't buy it here. I just, just don't, don't trust the direction and the policies that are surrounding it. So I then, so then these it, things are, in your estimations, are they uninvestable forever? The Alibabas, I, the Baidus? <laughs> You, you know, the JDs, I could go, you know, there are other stocks at Tencent, others that, that you, you all know as well. Scott, I don't see how I could get my arms around this. I mean, I, I'm a willing risk taker. I like taking risks because that's where reward comes from. But I have to know the risks I'm taking, right? The risks could be just to pull a name out of a hat, one you and I have fun with, that maybe Paramount doesn't have as many subscribers this quarter as expected. That's a risk I'm willing to take. I'm willing to go toe-to-toe with you on the day the bad results come out. With China, I have no idea what the risks are. And everybody, and Steph said it very eloquently, and, and Bill's with me on this, I hate that term uninvestable. I hate it, but, man, this is the one case where I would use it. I got burned on Pinduoduo. I, don't, I will not go back there. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's get the headlines now with Bertha Coombs. Hi, Bertha. Hey, how are you, Scott? Here's what's happening at this hour. 
Russian leader Vladimir Putin driving across a bridge in Crimea two months after a massive explosion destroyed a portion of that roadway. Putin blamed Ukraine for striking the key supply line, but Ukraine never claimed responsibility. Elsewhere in Russia, authorities are investigating reports of explosions near two military air bases deep inside their country. This comes amid reports that the U.S. took specific measures to keep Ukraine from firing American-made missiles deep into Russia. The Wall Street Journal reporting that the U.S. secretly modified the HIMARS rocket, rocket launcher system to prevent it from firing long-range missiles. The Pentagon, the Biden administration, and the Ukrainian military declined to comment to the journal. And jury deliberations are underway in the Trump Organization tax fraud trial. Prosecutors allege the company operated an off-the-book scheme to compensate top executives. Former company CFO Alan Weisselberg testified in the trial, and the company could incur fines if convicted. Scott, okay. back over All right, Bertha, thank you. That's Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, the S&P is having its worst year since 08. We have the ETF playbook for year-end tax loss harvesting, plus one of our calls of the day is a sector today it's been beat up actually well it's flying high i don't know what i just read we're back after this it's a mystery just like the chart what does it mean to be rich is it having more stories to share or time to give is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away at Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. It has been a rough year, and a lot of investors have had losses, particularly in tech stocks and other funds. Tax loss harvesting allows investors to sell securities at a loss and offset those losses against capital gains, taxes on other securities. You can use ETFs for tax loss harvesting. Let's talk about that with DJ Tierney. He's the senior investment portfolio strategist at Schwab Asset Management Solutions. DJ, you were uh, sort of the face of Schwab ETFs to a lot of the clients out there. How are some of them using ETFs for tax loss harvesting? Hi, Bob. Yeah, what we're seeing uh, amidst the, the turmoil of 2022, and let's face it, it's been a very rough year for investors. And it doesn't matter whether you've been in U.S. stocks, international stocks, bonds, treasuries, corporates, real estate investment trusts, everything is down, and it's down materially. So it's a really noteworthy year on that regard. What we're seeing advisors do is take some really interesting tactical steps to reduce tax obligations for their investors. And so uh, something you should do, something you should consider if you're, if you're not aware of this, engage with your advisor, maybe with your tax advisor as well, and talk about uh, do you have any investments on the books you've made in the last year or few years that are at a loss where you can sell those, realize the loss, and stay invested in ETFs to keep your exposure consistent. So the important thing is, and we're going to discuss some practical applications of how to do this on ETF Edge, but the important thing is you're seeing instances where people are, in fact, doing this. We are seeing some flows around this. Am I correct? 
We are, we are. And one, one example, Bob, is in the, in the bond space. If you've bought a total return bond fund, not just in the last year, but even in the last five years, chances are you're down on that investment, somewhere between 12 and 15%. So a simple example might be, if you've had a $25,000 investment in a total return bond fund, right now it's worth 22,000. Sell it at 22,000, take a $3,000 loss, invest the proceeds in an aggregate bond ETF. By the way, you'll lower your expenses by about 90% typically in that. And then $3,000 loss can be used to offset even ordinary income. If you're in a 33% tax bracket, you've just saved yourself $1,000 when you file taxes in April for 2022. That's a very practical application. We're going to have more of that on ETF Edge. Now, dividend ETFs have been big investor darlings this year. Your dividend equity ETF, SCHD, it's your biggest ETF. It's one of the top 25 ETFs by assets. Huge inflows this year. I see it's down only 3% this year. So you've got a combination of dividends and defensive stocks being very potent this year, no? Yeah, we, we, we're, we're heartened by the, the inflows we've seen in the Schwab U.S. dividend ETF. That space, by the way, the dividend space has been the number one asset gatherer among ETFs. If you look at factor uh, investing, dividends is far and away the biggest. But SCHD is the biggest, uh, biggest winner among that space. And, you know, we think there's attributes that give investors comfort. It's got a quality screen. So to your point, it's buying companies that are not just paying dividends, but can afford to pay those dividends. And so it's, you know, it's been a place where investors have sought comfort this year, and, and it actually has worked out pretty well. Okay, we're going to have much more on tax loss harvesting and ETFs coming up at 1 p.m. Eastern time. That's ETF Edge. DJ is going to be joined by Dave Nodding. He's the financial futurist at Vetify. We'll talk more about dividend investing as well. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime returns right after this. Welcome back. It's time for the call of the day. Bullish calls on some airlines. All right, Jimmy. Morgan Stanley calls Delta a top pick in 23. You've got that. City initiates Alaska as a buy. You got that. How about this space here? Um, I like it. You know, I like it. Again, you can't own this sector. You cannot own this sector if you believe that you're going into a recession. Because in a real recession, I'm not talking about the first half of this year. That wasn't a recession. In a real recession, you get airplanes parked in the Mojave Desert because nobody's flying. You've got air traffic travel by passenger counts back up at 2019 levels. And I think what's kind of important, you know, Scott, we were talking about wind resorts on Friday, and I talked about the Las Vegas Convention and Visitor Authority figures. Do you know that convention uh, attendance is up 20% in the month of October over to 2019 levels. What does that mean? That means that corporations are spending on business travel. Now, I know that, that there's all these surveys out there saying how dismal CEO sentiment is. I get it. That, those are actual reports. Well, I mean, what they're the, actually the, doing, though. This roundtable today, though. I, I know, Even but what, like they're 10 actually, minutes ago, right? what they're actually doing, they're saying one thing, Scott. I'm with you. That's what the business roundtable said. They're saying one thing. They're doing another. It's been the story the whole year. I know, but aren't you conflating with sort of what's happening right now with what the outlook is to why you would buy this. I would never buy an airline stock because planes are filled today. Why would you you do that? You you heard me say that if you believe we're going into recession, you heard me say this clearly. I'll say it again. Do not buy airline stocks if you think you're going into recession. I have made a case again and again and again that we're going to have a soft landing. I could be wrong. But I've made the case. And if that's the case, at the, at the levels these shares are trading, these are great buys. So, it, again, if you think it's a recession, don't buy these. 
Don't attack me. I'm just asking a question. Are yes. you comfortable with the balance sheets? Ooh, that's a great question. Thank you. Because That's a great question. Wouldn't own American Airlines. Sorry, American. You got a terrible balance sheet. Alaska Airlines, which you know is my favorite, mm-hmm. has a has a net cash position. I like Alaska Airlines. Okay. Uh, Delta, United, you know, they've got some debt there, but they're still, again, absent a recession. Don't they're going to make it through. Don't you these are kind of trading range stocks, though? Usually they are, Steph, but here you've got this case of the market is pricing them for a recession if you don't get one. Got it. I only go to the, you know, again, I'm looking at the roundtable things that just crossed, right? Overall, the index down 11 points, hiring down 17 points, capital investment down 7 points, sales down 8 points. If you do start to get even a more slow economy, you don't necessarily have to go into a full-blown recession, but if people are a little tighter with their purse strings, then... You may not have the business travel to the degree of which you think you might, even if you, you don't, have, you Listen, don't necessarily have to point. not have a this recession. Is a, this is a good point. And then you get into this discussion of what's the right price to pay for these stocks. I take Alaska as a case where the debt, this is a good point, the debt level doesn't bother me at all. Okay, And I look at a company that's selling at single times what next year's earnings are. I'll take the risk. Scott, I'll take the risk of what you're saying is true. I'll take it. I'll accept that re- risk for the reward. I could be wrong. That's the nature of risk. Okay. Uh, up next, Mike Santoli's with his midday word. We're back right after this. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. There he is from the stock exchange. It's midday word. Is this about you think you know pretty decent economic news? Is pretty bad stock news because of the implications for the Fed? What do, what do you think? That's the surface level read. I think that makes sense. Um, Yeah, the debate is over soft landing or not. Well, things aren't soft enough in the immediate term. Uh, In order to support the idea of what Jay Powell said last Wednesday being the assumption, right? They're going to go slower, pull back. By the way, that day uh, on Wednesday of last week was the only day of the last seven the S&P 500 has been up. Now, it was up 3%. You're still above the level of pre-Powell pop. Uh, That would be... 39.40 or so on the S&P 500. So you have like a percent, percent and a half uh, above that. So it makes sense. We're just sort of chopping around, making sense of things. The dollar is up and really started to go up after the ISM services number at 10 a.m. this morning. So, yes, that's the storyline at the moment. Uh, I do think it's happening in the context of a market that saw this 17 percent rally. It looks a lot like what we got in June to August with some important differences in terms of seasonal factors, in terms of how the dollar has behaved and in terms of, I think, how, how much closer we are uh, to when the Fed is going to be able to slow down. But uh, clearly, you know, uh, as you, no clinching arguments just yet on harder soft landing and gentler Fed or not just yet. So maybe we tread water a little bit until CPI next week and then it's binary. Mm-hmm. It's either good or bad for, for this end of year rally. Mike, I'll see you in a few hours down at the Stock All Exchange. Right. That's Mike Santoli. Financials among the worst performers today, down 2% with the investment committee uh, thinks about the big banks going into next year. We'll talk about it next. Grade my trade. Send us your latest stock move, and the investment committee will debate it and grade it. Email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com or tweet us, hashtag grade my trade. All right, not a great day for the financials, as you just saw there, but it is a big week 
because you do have a number of sell-side conferences going on, including Goldman's Financials Conference tomorrow. Uh, Bill, so there's a good note today from Credit Suisse, which says our highest conviction recommendations with 15% total return potential include Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley. You own Morgan Stanley and Wells Fargo. Of course, this all depends, they say, on the confidence in the manageability of macro slowing. Yeah. I mean, everybody's expecting that slowdown in the quarter one. Mm -hmm. I'm not that negative. Um, You know, the headwind, the yield curve inversion, it hasn't been that much of a headwind for banks as it as historically can be. So I think that's kind of working through that as a positive. Um, The the wealthier clients are are, are helping with with loan origination. I, you know, I I, we're overweight and I'm going to say overweight until until there's a, you know, something to be scared about here. You are, too. Overweight. The financials. I am. And we got some interesting Fed data over the weekend. The H8 is kind of a little bit too wonky, but loan growth, it showed, is up about 12 percent year over year. So it's staying very strong. Credit remains stable and higher rates should help with operating leverage as well. So I do still own Wells Fargo as my largest position. I just think it's so cheap at 1.1 times book. And they're the most sensitive to higher rates, especially on the short end. Bank of America is the second most sensitive to higher interest rates. And they have a great cost cutting program. Morgan Stanley, I like what they're doing in terms of M&A and diversifying away from being so dependent on higher rates or lower rates. Is this binary? Soft landing versus recession means buy or sell these stocks? No, I think financials as a sector are in a much better place. Let me explain why. I think it's interesting to go back and study prior recessions and how a sector responds to a recession. Think about the recession, 2000 to 2002. Which sector was indicative of the stress of that environment, technology, right? Next recession in 2008, which sector actually had the most resiliency? Technology, because they rebuilt their balance sheet. The same can be said for the great financial crisis. It was financials that were the source of stress. They've spent the last 10 years rebuilding their balance sheet. Scott, I think that means in this recession, you're going to find a degree of resiliency that no one would expect. And I think that's where you get the outperformance in the banks. City, Goldman, JPM, those are yours? Yeah. And, you know, uh, I think what uh, Steph said and, and what Bill said, you know, that's the headwinds of an inverted curve. But then you've got loan growth demand and, and credit quality. Everything we hear is good. What we haven't mentioned is the fact that if the economy continues to not go into recession and the markets recover on that, you're going to get uh, capital markets business. Uh, you know, the IPO calendar has been dead. That will come back to life. Trading will get better. That will help as well. But again, and I, you know, I don't like doing the binary thing, Scott, but you asked it. I got to tell you, this is kind of binary. You have to you have to not go into recession. It's not I'm disagreeing with you, Joe. What I'm saying is they're just not going to perform if we go into a recession. Of course, nothing's going to perform if you go into a recession. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern today. Lizanne Saunders from Schwab's joining us today. Victoria Green, Dan Greenhouse is going to be with us as well. Mike Mayo will be with us too. I mentioned a big week for those uh, sell-side conferences, including the Goldman Financial one, and he's going to size up all of these companies ahead of all that. So I hope you'll join me in just a few hours from now. Stephanie Link, final trade is what? DuPont. Stock's down 13% year-to-date, yields 2%. They're simplifying their business mix. They're paying down debt, and they're buying back new $5 billion pro- uh, program. Okay, thank you. Joey? Arch Capital Group, ticker symbol is ACGL. It's got a low beta. $21 billion is the market cap. This is an insurance company. All right. Farmer Jim. 
Well, I like backing my, up the tractor uh, on what? Yep, with with old green and yellow here, uh, Deer Company. Look, I like Perfectly, industrial. Perfectly. Wow, I didn't even realize that. All right, uh, I didn't even look. I thought I thought that's what you're. No, I was just you there. know figuring yeah. you're you know back up the tractor, buy something. <laughs> what is it? Well, look look at all these names are kind of cyclical, right? Almost all of them. I'm not quite sure about Arch Capital, but n- nonetheless, this is a cyclical list here. Deer's right on there. Industrials are where you want to be right now. Okay, uh, Bill. Rockwell Automation, let's talk about a stock expecting double-digit earnings growth in 2023. As wages go up, more automation. Okay, I'm looking at the Dow, barely holding on to 34K. It's down uh, a little more than 400. I'll see you in OT. The exchange is right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.